Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Arthur Hyde. Arthur is a partner and portfolio manager at Segra Capital Management. In the words of their website, Segra Capital focuses exclusively on contrarian or underfollowed investment ideas. And today we're going to be talking about one of them, and that is nuclear as ESG. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, that's environmental, environment, social governance uh, criteria for investment. Um, so Arthur, welcome to Decouple. I'm excited to break this down with you. Uh, it's an area that I'm pretty unfamiliar with, so it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Chris. Uh, big fan of the platform, and I'm excited to be on. Okay, Arthur. So um, I like to ambush my guests with a bit of a self-introduction. So if you can tell me a little bit more about yourself and, and maybe a few kind of personal details to humanize you for, for my audience. Yeah, sure. So, so as you stated, I, I work at Segra Capital Management. I help manage our nuclear power and uh, fuel cycle focused fund. Um, I grew up in uh, Southern New York and I live there now with my three kids. Went to Amherst College and I've been really excited about kind of the clean energy transition since college. So, so it's exciting to be on here talking about a potential solution to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, in terms of uh, breaking down ESG, let's, let's dive into the history a little bit. Um, you know, when I was preparing for this, there's, there's a history to, to sort of uh, this idea of investing your money to, to try and do good, doing good to do well, I, I guess is one of the quotes. But, you know, this, this would go back, I'm sure farther than this, but, you know, to the avoidance of sin stocks by certain religious groups like Methodists and, and Quakers. Um, you know, avoiding things like tobacco and alcohol and adult entertainment, um, but also sort of divestment campaigns. Um, you know, you can think of things uh, such as some of Bill McKibben's uh, strategies, but also divestment from South African apartheid. Um, so give us a bit of a history of this idea um, of, I guess, activist investment and, uh, and give us, uh, you know, a bit about the history and, and uh, definition of ESG. Yeah, so, so the way I'd, I'd kind of characterize it is that a lot of the aspects of ESG that we focus on today have been a part of most investors' toolkits for a long time, right? I think if you talk to any investor, and they've, they've likely always thought about governance um, when, they, when they look at a company or when they look at an investment opportunity. Um, they often think about environmental footprint. I think what's different today is that you have a much more formalized approach and a group of standards being set up. Um, kind of a roadmap, if you will, to how we think about non-financial um, uh, uh, aspects of a corporation. Um, and the reason it's become such a focus lately uh, is probably two things. First, um, clearly there's a broader discussion um, in our cultural dialogue around things like environmentalism, things like diversity and representation, um, and things like making sure that corporations um, focus on more than just the bottom line. Right, we as consumers, we as investors, all want that. Um, and then separately, I would say that um, there's a real acknowledgement that there can be a difference between the owners of capital and the allocators of capital. And so, an investor may be representing a much broader group uh, than themselves. Think about pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. A lot of the investment vehicles that are driving a tremendous amount of capital in the system are being asked to look at more than just returns when allocating that capital. They're being asked to, to a certain extent, pick winners and losers. We can talk through how that's developing and why, but I do think it's those two dynamics that are driving a formalization of this process. Is the um, emergence of um, these kind of an investment, uh, mega investment funds like uh, BlackRock, for instance, um, you know, driving this further? I, and I'm aware of this letter that uh, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, uh, sent out uh, imploring companies to serve a social purpose and, you know, even threatening that uh, BlackRock would avoid certain investments. Um, you know, is, is the emergence of things like uh, ETFs, uh, ETF funds and, and, and entities like BlackRock uh, putting more wind in the sails of ESG? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably caution against kind of like a one-size-fits-all approach when you think about ESG application. So maybe stepping back a little bit, at its, at its highest level, ESG is really about disclosure. It's this concept that if you look at a corporation um, and you just look at its balance sheet income statement, cash flow statement, you don't necessarily get a full picture of their impact, right? 
you're not necessarily seeing their environmental footprint perfectly, and you're not necessarily seeing what their governance policies are driving. So as an investor, you actually have an incomplete picture of what this company is. And so what ESG investors are really asking for is enhanced data and enhanced disclosure so that investors and owners of capital can better decide whether this is an investment opportunity that they find promising. So that's just getting out of the way what ESG is. And it's sure, really yeah. about, again, more disclosure at the corporate level. Separate from that, um, and almost distinct from it, is how investors then elect to use that data within their own process. And this is where I'd say that it really depends on who you are. So if you're a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund, you're actually controlling the capital of a broad and diverse set of individuals that may agree or disagree on things like climate issues. It's much harder to, to make sure you understand what the capital you're speaking for believes, right? If you're a um, private equity fund, for example, you're taking very, very long uh, time horizon investments, right? Seven to 10 years. And so focusing on things like governance and building that into your investment criteria makes all the sense in the world. Because over the lifetime of your investment process, you will really see the benefit of, of those drivers. If you're a high frequency hedge fund holding a stock for three seconds, maybe ESG will never come into play for you because it doesn't make sense. Right. So I guess my point is that it's not necessarily a one size fits all model in terms of how ESG data is then employed in an investment process. Um, it very much depends on the source of capital, the type of investor, and then how they elect to employ it, right? Do they want to divest, right? Do they want to use it as a screening mechanism to decide what industries and companies they don't want to touch? Do they want to use it as a risk management tool so that they're just aware that within their subset of portfolio companies that they do believe in, they understand what are the most material aspects non-financially that could impact that investment over time? Or probably in the most extreme case, are they really more of an impact investor? Are they trying to target some change? Are they a clean energy transition focus fund? Are they trying to not only avoid risks, but achieve a certain goal through deploying those ESG frameworks? And so again, not to open a can of worms, um, because I know we could go probably a lot of directions off that, but I just don't want listeners to think of it as kind of, um, some single investment rubric that's being applied jointly by capital globally. I think it's much more dynamic than that. Mm -hmm. And I guess ultimately, you know, ESG feeds back on bottom lines. If there's a, a scandal um, with a data management company with a big leak of, of data due to poor, I guess, governance, um, that's going to affect the bottom line. So ultimately, it, it you can see it sort of feeding back there. Something that I found was interesting in, in looking at um, the investors community uh, emerging concern with climate change, for instance, is that insurance losses from climate related events have apparently risen fivefold in the last three decades. So there's, I think, a real understanding that climate change is going to have um, an impact on on markets. Um, and I'm not sure to what degree some of that pressure is, is coming from these uh, these uh, insurance entities. But, you know, moving on, um, you know, we're here to talk about nuclear as a as an ESG investment. I was um, looking around and there was a, a fund called uh, Host Plus. It's, I think, based out of Australia. And, you know, nuclear is listed alongside pornography, tobacco, alcohol, gambling, live animal exports. You know, where does nuclear stand right now uh, in terms of ESG criteria? And, and why do you think it, it should fit in that way and in, into ESG? Sure. Um, I, I think the answer is there's a lot of disparate opinions on where nuclear fits. Um, the things that people generally agree on are really that um, as a generation source, nuclear is low carbon. Um, nuclear has a, has a phenomenal ESG track record in a lot of ways. Um, things like long-term stable employment, um, the corporate governance and regulatory structure around nuclear uh, is very well-defined in a lot of ways, the nuclear industry has already been self-regulating by reporting things like waste management, um, uh, dealing with end of life for facilities. Um, it's just been a, in a very heavily regulated industry. And so in a way, they're actually far ahead from a disclosure standpoint when it comes to many of the dynamics around ESG. I think where it gets caught up a bit more is as you uh, very well know, whenever somebody talks about nuclear, they tend to come with a pretty strong opinion. Um, 
And so I would say a lot of the disagreement on where nuclear fits from an ESG standpoint has more to do with how you think about the technology as a whole than, than its actual um, scientific criteria. From a, uh, from a scientific standpoint, um, it actually checks a lot of the boxes incredibly well. Um, whether or not somebody uh, tends to bucket it within their ESG framework, at least in my experience, has to do a little bit more with their personal opinion of the technology. Are there any examples of uh, investment funds that, that do list nuclear positively in a positive light in terms of ESG, or is that not something that's emerged yet? No, I, I don't. What I would say is when I, when I think about um, funds, funds will typically be, um, I, I think the majority of investment frameworks are not, um, they're scientifically driven and technology neutral, right? So they'll decide on a project based on um, the actual ESG footprint of that project. When you think about bucketing a technology at large, that's more that's happening more uh, maybe at the ESG rating agency level. So um, it's funny that when you brought up this example, there is a very large, very well-known ESG rating agency that we've engaged with to discuss how they look at nuclear. And their argument is actually they don't have anything against the technology. They don't necessarily penalize a corporation for being involved with it, but they also don't necessarily give it any accolades. They don't give it any positive benefit like they do wind and solar. At the mm -hmm. same time, that rating agency does have a similar page where they list nuclear alongside things like child pornography or, or any other horrible. And, and when we challenged them on that, they said, oh, this isn't driven by us. This doesn't have to do with our rubric. This is because investors wanted a flag. And the word nuclear is something they flag often, right? So the answer is, I think each um, rating agency has its own rubric and its own process. Most of the time, they don't tend to give the full benefit of the low carbon baseload nature of nuclear, um, but they don't necessarily penalize it either. It sits in a weird gray area. And that's where I think the industry and investors can do a lot to explain the benefits of the technology and make sure it's categorized appropriately going forward. Mm -hmm. and, and what are the impacts of, of nuclear, I guess, not necessarily being excluded, but sort of sitting in this no man's land? Um, you know, and I guess in what ways is, is ESG maybe overvaluing certain sectors, distorting um, the, the relative value of, of investments um, and, and hurting nuclear? I mean, you know, we talk about the, uh, the key elements of nuclear finance as the, the cost of capital and the, and the capital costs. Um, and right now it seems like it's pretty hard, at least in the West to, to fund a nuclear plant affordably. There's really high interest rates involved. Um, would a more favorable listing in terms of ESG have a significant, significant impact, um, on, uh, nuclear finance and especially in the West? You know, I, I don't think that the reason that nuclear plants in the West aren't being built is because they're not being labeled as ESG. I don't think ESG is driving the cost of capital yet. Um, I think the bigger risk is that going forward, to the extent that nuclear is not seen as sustainable within um, frameworks like the taxonomy, um, it will actually just face a higher cost of capital over time. And as you say, given it's an incredibly capital intensive um, technology, that will, on a relative basis, make it less competitive, right? Um, and this doesn't just matter for new projects, it also matters for the cost of capital of existing plants. So I do believe it's very important for the industry to be viewed on a fair and even, uh, um, you know, apples to apples basis with other technologies. Um, and that's why um, we and other investors that, that kind of believe in the sector are advocating for it to be treated fairly. Um, but I don't, I, I, I certainly would not say that ESG um, um, expectations are what's, what's has hurt the, the right. nuclear industry in the West today. I, but I, I guess in terms of, I guess in terms of the future, um, do you see sure. um, this this change in ESG ranking um, making nuclear more affordable in the West? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd probably argue that it's not as if nuclear is viewed as as um, outside of of ESG today. I mean, again, I, I don't really think of it as black and white. Um, there's kind of two separate issues. One is how do investors and how do rating agencies look at nuclear from an ESG standpoint? So how do companies associated with the nuclear industry rate on these relative ranking criteria? There's a separate issue, which is if a region, um, let's say, let's just use the EU because they're going through it now. If the EU labels the technology as unsustainable, it could be left out of specific financing programs set up for sustainable technologies. So these are two kinds of separate issues. One is, 
again, how do investors rank the, the, the companies associated with the technology that will impact their cost of capital over time? So it's important that um, the industry is acknowledged for the benefits it has or it, it, it gives. Um, and then separately, we want to make sure the technology isn't arbitrarily left out of defined financing systems like the EU tech, taxonomy. Yeah, so let's go into the EU taxonomy a little more. I, I, I feel like, you know, there's this cycle every few months where it seems like nuclear is going to be included, then excluded, where it's being listed alongside natural gas. I understand there was a, a joint um, scientific commission um, that was uh, set up in order to, you know, just look at the actual underlying science and, and feed that back to policymakers. But certainly there's, there's some competing ideologies and interests within the EU, I think, namely France and Germany. Um, with Germany, I think, putting a lot of pressure to sort of prematurely close this process, um, even before that uh, GRC report came in, um, so that there would be more of an opportunity, to, I think, to ignore the report later. What's, what's your read on, on what's going on there and the relevance of the EU taxonomy? Yeah, I, I think that um, if you look back, um, the concept of the taxonomy is really simple. It's we're going to lower the cost of capital for specific um, tech, uh, technology and specific um, industries um, so that we, we effectively get more clean energy over time. And we're going to raise the cost of capital for, for anything that falls outside of this sustainability definition. Right. Um, clearly, the, the discussion around nuclear in Europe has always been political, with on one side, the French, the Nordic countries pushing for inclusion of nuclear in, in, um, in, in the conversation, and Germany and Austria pushing against. Um, the concept of the JRC um, really came about because um, what the industry asked for was, was two things. Can we look at everything we're calling sustainable on a technology neutral basis? And can we look at it scientifically? And so they established this panel of experts that were going to study the issue over, I think it was about a year and a half. Um, that report got leaked recently. And um, I think most of the... Um, most of the ESG, or it's really environmental in this case, environmental issues, uh, nuclear checks the box really well, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's low carbon, um, it's incredibly small land footprint. I mean, broadly, and we can get into this later, a world which is focused on ESG is incredibly good for nuclear. Um, and we can walk through why. Um, the EU had a very specific, um, uh, uh, I guess, line in its, in its um, regulation that said that the technology can, cannot do any significant harm to the environment, right? Sure. So do no harm principle. Um, effectively, when they initially reviewed nuclear's technology, um, the commission came back and said, well, we don't know that we have enough data from a waste management perspective to make this decision, hence the JRC report. So they spent all this time, they put the report together, and lo and behold, they find not only is nuclear no worse than other technologies included in the EU taxonomy, on a lot of metrics, it's significantly, significantly better. And, and to the extent people have the time, I'd, I'd say try to read through the 400-page report, because the, the benefit of that is not only does nuclear look not worse, there's a lot of places where it really leads. And so um, I think the report is fantastic for the industry. Um, I'd caution any victory laps because like anything in the EU, a lot of the process from here on out will be political. Um, the JRC report will be reviewed by two additional technical teams, I think by June of this year. And then at least it's my understanding that any formalization of the delegated act that would include nuclear is likely a fall event. And so it, it's certainly a big win, um, but it's acknowledging something we, anybody that's focused in the industry already knows, which is Scientifically, um, there's nothing wrong with nuclear energy, especially when you compare it against things like wind and solar. Um, whether they'll win out in a political dogfight um, remains to be seen. And you know, to what to what degree, I guess, it, the, within the EU are, are the other power players evenly matched? Um, I mean, even even France has has been committing to decreasing its nuclear fleet from I think 75% of its electricity generation to 50. Um, you know, I guess how muscular is the, the pro-nuclear uh, side of this debate um, in, in this, yeah, in this, in this EU taxonomy? I, I, think, I think it's a little bit um, more complex. It's, it's not just nuclear that's being negotiated here. It's nuclear, it's hydro, um, it's um, um, gas, frankly. 
And so if you look at um, Germany, they're, they're pushing for uh, bridge fuel and inclusion of gas, um, which you know, in a world focused on decarbonization, we can, we can debate about how uh, comical that is. But um, I think at the end of the day, you likely will see horse trading. You will likely see compromise. And if you don't, and you end up with an EU taxonomy that forces investors to invest solely on wind and solar for the next 30 years, it probably won't be that impactful a program um, because frankly, it won't solve the problem. So um, my expectation is that uh, nuclear will be included and maybe at the expense of, of something like a gas inclusion, but we'll see. I mean, it's a little bit hard to tell at this point. Uh, I'd say everything scientifically um, is pointing in the right direction. It's interesting the criteria of you know that that uh, to be sustainable uh, these these various energy technologies can do no environmental harm. I mean that's just a ridiculous proposition to begin with. Uh, every energy source will have an impact on the environment. Um, we've been focusing a lot recently on the podcast, looking at the uh, the material intensity of uh, of renewable energy, particularly wind and solar. Um, we had Mark Mills on recently, and I mean just interesting stats around uh, you know things like electric cars where you know, to build that 1000 pound battery, you need to move 500,000 pounds of, of earth around. Um, I just feel like there's this, this huge kind of naivete around what underlies these various energy sources. And, you know, when you make a, a, a criteria being that, that these technologies can do no environmental harm, I mean, that just seems completely open to political manipulations. Um, I, I mean, it, it sounds good on paper, right? Sure. <laughs> I, think, sure. I think at the end of the day, um, you're right. I, I think if, if the nuclear industry had had one problem over time, it's that it's often been compared against uh, some theoretical energy source that doesn't exist, right? Right. Um, you know, it's like, we'd like it to be safer. It's incredibly safe. We'd like it to be less materials intensive. It's, it's on, a, on a scaled basis, incredibly low from a materials and, and land standpoint. So um, listen, let, let me say at the outset, we're not anti-wind and solar at Segra at all. Um, we think we need wind and solar. We think we need batteries. We think we need nuclear. We think we need, um, we need everything. I mean, I, we're big believers. The reason we're so focused on nuclear is because we think it's the most misunderstood, you know, investment markets are about rate of change and perception, right? That's, that's the key dynamic. And so when we look across the clean energy transition, ask your average Joe on the street, what they think of wind and solar, and it's, it's going to solve everything. Ask them what they think about nuclear. And, and they probably don't have an opinion outside of, you know, that's kind of scary, right? Mm. And so it's that that shift in opinion, maybe saying that wind and solar can't do quite as much as everybody thinks they can, and nuclear can do a lot more than what your average person thinks it can. It's that shift in expectations that we think is an opportunity in the markets. Um, but I don't want to put, uh, I, I may be critical of something like wind and solar on the podcast, um, but that's really just because I think that on a relative basis, um, it, it's, 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 uh, they often benefit of, of a non apples to apples comparison against, um, things like nuclear. And I mean, it's interesting that you guys are so focused on nuclear energy. It's, it's obviously, I think, considered a, a high risk investment with really long return on investment windows. Um, what's your sense of the kind of overall status of, of the nuclear sector? I mean, there seems to be a pretty serious decline in atrophy in the West, Maybe that's going to be balanced out by power players like China domestically and, and Russia kind of with its international export model. Um, where, do you, where do you see the balance there? Where are the opportunities? Um, you know, I, I guess you have to be optimistic since you're, you've chosen to sort of focus on this sector. Um, but tell me, tell me a bit more about your overall sense. We think nuclear technology um, holds fantastic promise, right? And, and I think that for a lot of the world, we will continue building nuclear at scale. Um, whether that happens in the U.S. and Europe in the next 10 years, I think is a little bit more debatable. But I think that that is, that is largely, again, what the market expects. Um, to the extent that there's any sort of an uptick in interest and demand in, in the West, that's kind of gravy. It's a, it's a right tail risk to a thesis, I'd say that way. What I would say is, versus when we started looking at this, the, the concept of a return to nuclear in the West is much more likely than it was three or four years ago. Really? And the reason for that is because um, for the first time, we are setting carbon targets with a deadline, right? It's, it's easy to talk about decarbonization, but when you are, you know, President Biden's administration, I think he's saying 2035 to decarbonize the grid, all of a sudden you've got a ticking clock, right? And at that point, abandoning nuclear, losing plants, transitioning towards a more variable grid, um, actually 
has implications, right? You're talking about it on a much more compressed time scale. So I think on a relative basis to three, four years ago, when we first started looking at the space, we're much more optimistic. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, that's because for the first time, the time is on the side of nuclear. We are, we are trending towards a promise that we cannot hit without a rededication of the industry. And we like that a lot. That, that's interesting. I mean, I think often the, the tight timelines are used against nuclear because of the, uh, the time of construction, right? Uh, particularly in the West where, you know, that can take upwards of, of 10 years and people are saying, well, if our, our deadline is, you know, I guess 20, 35, 14 years away, it's, it's going to be too slow. Um, I mean, that certainly doesn't apply to builds around the world where the Chinese are, I think, hitting um, and the Koreans, for instance, and UAE are hitting sort of more four or five year um, um, timelines. But um, you know, the other concept is decarbonization durability. Um, and when you have a, a piece of energy infrastructure that can last for 80 to 100 years, um, that's radically different than, um, you know, these shorter lived uh, sources. And, you know, I was talking to an expert in the UK and he was saying, listen, everything that's currently on the grid and, and even that's getting built right now is going to be offline by 2050. Um, so do, do you think that's, is that another kind of selling point for nuclear? Yeah, I mean, maybe backing it up when we talk to other investors, especially one thing we like about the industry, and I'm sure you found this as well, is the more educated you are on the actual technology, the more pro-nuclear you tend to be, right? Um, there, there's, a, there's a very positive correlation with people that have actually spent time researching the technology and are big advocates for it. Um, so when we talk to investors that are not as focused on nuclear, have never spent time with it, and we're trying to educate them on the process, and when we think about economics and competitiveness, there's kind of three ways um, where I think nuclear is maligned or misunderstood. The first is a regional basis, which you outlined there, which is if you're a US investor and your um, comparison point or your, your data point for what nuclear costs is vocal, right? You're very skeptical on the technology period. Um, so uh, if you're sitting in Hong Kong and you're an allocator, and you watch what China's doing, right? They just announced the Hualong 2, which they'll, they'll start building in 2024, sub $2,000 per kilowatt, four-year build timeline. You know, if they can hit that, nuclear's competitive with everything, right? Mm -hmm. So again, I think there's a huge bias based on where an investor sits in terms of how they think about the competitiveness and the economics of nuclear. That's doubly true because the cost of um, other resources differs a lot globally, right? So natural gas is incredibly cheap in Pennsylvania, right? right? It's not necessarily so cheap in Japan and Korea. So if you look at other countries, when they turn on nuclear reactors, their cost of electricity goes down dramatically. You know, there's still a very big economic argument for the technology, not necessarily the case in PJM, right? So again, there's a huge bias based on how you think about the competition of nuclear from where you're sitting. Um, the second point is that the measurements are often just really... Um, poorly done. So when everybody thinks about the competitiveness of nuclear, they always refer back to like a Lazard 2017 LCOE study. Right. The answer is LCOE. I mean, if I could ask one thing of the industry, um, the nuclear industry should just never use LCOE ever when you're comparing against a completely different technology. Um, I don't that, know that's how... Just, just for, I think most of our listeners will be familiar, but that's the levelized cost of electricity. And just, just uh, briefly tell us why it's a, not a great metric. So it's a, it's a really simple metric and it's often used, it's often cited in sell-side reports and, and consulting studies. And if you're comparing two similar systems, it works really well. You can kind of think of it almost like an IRR of, of what the, the cost of electricity will be over the life of the asset you're building. So if you're building two gas plants, really good way to compare. Uh, the problem is you're often comparing um, two very different systems when you're comparing you know, renewables to gas to coal to nuclear. And so there, there's, a, there's a few failings with it. One, one's a variable resource and one's baseload, right? Or on-demand versus non-on-demand. Right. And so um, th there is a very different value proposition to a grid when you are delivering continued 94% capacity factor nuclear power versus wind and solar when the sun shines and when the wind blows. So the outcome of your LCOE isn't, isn't apples to apples, right? And as long as we want to have power as soon as we plug something into the outlet or flip the light switch, you should be valuing baseload power significantly more. Um, the, the way to counteract that is 
you compare them on an apples to apples basis. So you take the LCOE and wind and solar and you add in the battery cost or you right. add in the peaker, the gas peaker cost to back it up. And if you take those together, nuclear is still often many times more competitive, but that's not generally how they're used. The second problem with LCOE is that it's effectively just a big discounting model. And as any analyst that's ever worked in a discounted cash flow model and typed cash flows into a spreadsheet, whenever you're dealing with long time spans, the back half of your model is effectively worthless, right? right? Because of that discounting factor. And so if you're comparing one technology that can work for 60 to 80 years and another technology that works for 20, the long tail of nuclear is never valued appropriately by that LCOE, right? So exactly what you're saying, which is, we're going to build a nuclear plant today in 2020, and we're going to build a wind solar plant today in 2020. We have to build that wind or solar plant three times, if not more, over the lifespan of that nuclear reactor. That's not effectively modeled in. Right. So um, to truly look at apples to apples basis, you should look at things like total system costs. I don't want to get into it because it'll probably go down a rabbit hole, but there are a lot of um, uh, harder to calculate, but much more accurate um, apples to apples comparisons you can make. And broadly, I would say um, nuclear looks much, much more competitive, regardless of where you are, when you take those dynamics into account. Um, Just, I guess, kind of switching gears a little bit, uh, because I'm, I'm really fascinated with, um, again, the ability to, to build kind of on time and on budget in a lot of jurisdictions. And I'm trying to look, I mean, there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, you know, a healthy industry that's, you know, not doing just a first of a kind, but that's, that's got a, a healthy supply chain in place and a workforce with a lot of expertise and, you know, countries like, uh, like China and Russia that seem to be able to still build large infrastructure, but just purely on the financing model, um, break us, break it down a little bit for us, like say the difference between how, um, you know, the, this new Hualong one build in China is financed versus, um, something like Hinkley point in the West or Vogel. Well, one's just, I mean, I mean, in China, you're talking about really a government finance model. Right. Um, so, so you're not talking about market rates. I think the, the problem when you're thinking about financing, privately financing a nuclear reactor um, right now in the West, let's say, can be solved to a certain extent with structural changes. So uh, in the UK, they're looking at a regulated asset-based model, which would allow investors to actually earn a return during the construction period. And the reason that's important is because... Um, you know, even if your listeners are not investors, um, if you haven't built one in a while and you've seen that this will likely take six to eight to nine years to build and you're not earning any return over that period, and then you have a very defined return once you're actually generating electricity, that's not really a investment instrument that has a lot of comparables in, in the financial world. Um, if you all of a sudden are returning you're, you're earning a return from the moment you commit capital, that looks a lot more like a bond. Um, and as we know, interest rates globally are very, very low. And so a defined return on capital through the investment period, um, including the construction phase, actually may free up much more capital to look at the space. Um, there's all sorts of other structures that are being contemplated. Um, you know, a lot of the time, private capital is viewed as you know, the equity component in a nuclear new build. Uh, to the extent you could make that equity component last in first out, meaning that it's not necessarily committed when construction starts, but later towards the end of the construction period um, and gets paid back first, all of a sudden that's a pretty interesting and attractive um, investment opportunity. So um, again, I could, this, this is probably a, a more technical topic than your listeners want, but I would say generally um, it's not as if large scale isn't financeable it's not financeable if the assumption is that we're not going to be able to build these things on time and on budget in any realistic um, um, you know, industrial way. Um, and, and so it's really a question of confidence in the industry more than it is um, a structuring component. So, I mean, in terms of Hinkley Point, for example, I've heard that the, uh, you know, the interest is uh, being charged is around 9%. Um, obviously, it's been taking a very long time to build and that the final cost breakdown, something like two thirds of the cost is going to be interest, which is, you know, just wild, especially as you're saying in a time where there's, you know, very, very low interest rates available to government. Is Hinkley Point exclusively privately funded or is, is the UK government backing it up? Is there is there like a hesitancy in the West for government to sort of take on this debt, even though it is so, so low interest? Because, I mean, to me, it just it would seem to make 
a lot of sense in the current uh, interest rate uh, environment we're in for government to take on a bunch of debt and, and get these things built um, and harvest the benefits over the next, you know, I guess the, re- the return really happens after 15 or 20 years when the thing pays itself off. But um, can you can you walk us through a little bit about um, the the financing model of say Hinkley Point, for instance, and and to what degree government's involved, and I guess as well just to what degree um, potentially a, a change in ESG would would steer more capital or potentially reduce um, the interest rates that are being charged. Um, I think to the extent that um, if, if you look at like the the assumed co- um, interest cost of a wind and solar project, I think right now like the cap rates are something like three and a half percent. Versus, as you're saying, for Hinkley Point, something like nine and seventy percent of all costs is interest related. Um, the answer is yes. If if nuclear is bucketed within the ESG framework, qualifies for sustainable financing programs, and governments elect to um, share some of the risk burden with investors, you can certainly bring the cost of these projects down. Um, but I think you know the UK is an interesting example because um, they've now they're building this unit. Um, if they don't build another unit at Sizewell, they're not going to have any of the benefit from the, um, the, the workers that, that work on the first unit, then um, taking what they've learned and lowering the cost for a second unit, right? But it, going back to your initial premise, um, if you look around the world, everywhere we've brought the cost of reactors down and the timeline down, it's because of scale. China refers to it as fleet mode, but you can look at other examples through history. It's not China specific, whether that's Sweden or France or, I mean, Canada built 20 reactors in 20 years. You know, it's one of the most successful nuclear build processes ever. And they have a phenomenal fleet um, that's been incredibly helpful. So the answer is, um, I just don't want to get lost in the weeds of, of it being an investor limitation. I think on a, a much broader basis, it's about government's committing to a, a larger commitment to nuclear power, because once that is defined and investors can believe that there's a commitment to the industry, that cost of capital and that perception of risk comes down dramatically, right? right. And so I, 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 would, I think it's, it's wrong to say it's just a financing issue. Um, it's wrong to say it's just a risk sharing issue. It's also a commitment to the industry issue, right? It's, it's a uh, country dedicating to significant expansion. But I guess what the commonality is between those examples you gave in terms of China, France, and uh, humble Ontario here is that, again, these builds were largely government supported and, and financed, as far as I understand. And, you know, that leads to these economies of scale. And I mean, we have these eight unit um, reactor sites, right? Like we have the largest nuclear reactor in the world sitting in rural Ontario here, pumping out, I think, 6.3 gigawatts of power. And so I'm just, I'm a little skeptical that the private industry is going to be able to achieve similar things that, you know, someone was pointing out to me that, um, you know, certainly in the fifties, there was, you know, a big conflict between, I think probably sort of the new dealer TVA Democrats and, uh, and Eisenhower administration about the future of nuclear power. Would it be kind of privately owned and operated or, or would the state, uh, maintain a, a large role in it. And that probably led to a lot more of these sort of single or, or two reactor sites, which are, you know, less uh, financially viable over the long term. Um, I, I guess that's my question for you is, do you think that this, uh, that, you know, nuclear that's predominantly privately sector funded can can uh, achieve any of the sort of past successes of, of the buildups that you mentioned? I think that no, no matter what the way forward uh, in the West ends up being, it will, it will have a government, government component. You're not going to have large scale privately financed without government support. I, I think that that's relatively safe to say. Um, and but and does, think- that, does that just mean like the government's poning up a percentage of the overall capital costs? Or when you say government support, uh, again, as someone who's a little bit ignorant of, of finance, can you just help me understand what that means? Um, it, it, it can take a lot of forms. It can be um, a, co- a cost share. It could mean um, a government wrap of debt. Um, it can mean um, a preferential payout structure on the back end. So the answer is, I don't know that there's one solution. I guess what I'm saying is that unless you see confidence from the West that we are going to build a significant scale of these reactors, I think some private capital electing to build a one-off unit is unlikely. Um, and again, that's because most of the benefit of, uh, of 
nuclear cost coming down is a result of scaling the industry, right? It's what we're seeing in China now. Um, it's, it's the reason that you've seen success from Korea as well. So um, I, I, I just, the answer is we'll see, but the government needs to commit to the industry if it's going to build new nuclear. I think for large scale nuclear, that might be a ways out. I think there's obviously a lot more progress on advanced and SMRs in the US. Um, but again, globally, we're going to build a lot of reactors. Um, the Chinese, the Russians, India are going to build a significant amount of reactors. The question is, does the US keep a seat at the table? Does France keep a seat at the table and continue building um, Western designed reactors? And I think that is an open question. So yeah, let, let's pivot to uh, SMR and advanced nuclear then. Um, you know, certainly in some of my discussions with, uh, I, I kind of call him the arch pragmatist, uh, Ted Nordhaus, um, and, and, you know, some other proponents of, of SMRs in particular, the idea is that, listen, I mean, these liberalized electricity markets are, we're never going to build large gigawatt scale nuclear again. Um, that, you know, if, if we're sort of being largely financed by private sector, um, you know, initially, especially initially, I guess, um, to sort of restart an industry, um, the scale needs to be small. Um, you know, in, in terms of the plethora of, of advanced reactor companies, um, there's obviously a lot of sort of startup capital behind it. It kind of reminds me of sort of a, a Silicon Valley approach, perhaps. Um, what, what do you think are the, are the prospects there? Is that an area that your kind of your fund is interested in? Um, what, yeah, what, what is, uh, is, is this sort of the, the future of, of nuclear in terms of financing in the West? You know, I, I think that um, it, it's, it's a little bit open for the debate. I, I, from our standpoint, there are some really interesting designs out there that are going to need and have already attracted a tre- tremendous amount of capital, right? And those designs are all over the map from relatively similar to our current light water reactors to very, very different, right? Different, um, uh, different fuel, um, different coolants, uh, different structural components. So I, I think that the, the question is the U.S. is very much approaching a traditional capitalist model where you allow competition to unfold and you know, the, the best reactor design, the most commercial will win. If you look at what Russia and China are doing, they're effectively designing a few reactors and then saying, we're going to build these things now. Um, And so I think um, over the long haul, the U.S. will likely be more successful um, because we will likely wind up with better designs. I think the skeptic would say, "Okay, well, we need we need a few of these to go from paper to production and we need to do it relatively quickly um, because a lot of the addressable market for small modular reactors, sure, some of it's in the US, but a lot of it's in Africa and other parts of the world. Yeah. And so um, the, the question is kind of, does the regulatory environment and the permitting environment and the time that it takes to design and build one of these in the US put us at a disadvantage against competitor nations that are um, more willing to commit to a design uh, and, and d- define proof of concept, um, more willing to be the customer at the government level, right? Because I mean, that's that's a big issue here. Um, you've got a lot of phenomenal SMR designs, but who's committing to the project? Who's committing to finance it and, and become the the uh, the offtake? So does the government step into more of a, of a role where it, it um, is committing to power purchase agreements to help finance these things? We'll see. I think um, there's been a tremendous amount of progress and a lot of very positive headlines coming out of the Biden administration. There's um, uh, obviously been more funding towards advanced nuclear, um, but in terms of an in, in investable opportunity, we're still talking about the back half of this decade before any of these really um, are on grid generating electricity. Um, and that's really in the best case. So, um, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, I guess uh, Bill Gates was uh, trying to get his uh, nuclear tech built in China. Like that seemed like in terms of the regulatory environment, um, that was kind of the only place where, again, you can move off of these very um, impressive computer simulations and, and I guess kind of paper reactors into actually building and testing these things. Um, you know, I guess that there's that competing vision, as you were mentioning, between sort of this, you know, the, the com- competition of the, of the private sector, you know, getting towards, you know, what are the best designs and maybe ultimately winning out. But in terms of, you know, previously successful and economic nuclear builds, it seems to have always involved potentially a few bids, you know, we want, we want to find a reactor that, that meets these following criteria and then um, the government picking a winner and choosing, you know, one or two designs, maybe at different sizes um, and, and going gangbusters on those. And, and again, um, 
profiting from those established supply chains and, and, you know, construction experience. Um, like that, that just seems quite unlikely. And a lot of these, a lot of SMRs, for instance, because of that reliance on an economy of multiples to make them cheap, um, you know, that, that's, that's going to take what sometimes 50 units, hundred units, depending on the size. And it just seems, I'm very skeptical that the private sector is going to be able to make that kind of a commitment or choose a winner to a degree that, we're going to be building that number of units, you know, other than maybe micro modular reactors, but certainly anything that's kind of grid scale or sale, you know, that's, that's sellable to um, emerging countries like Africa, for instance, what, what's your take on that? Listen, that is the issue, right? That, that is the question. That is the dilemma. It's a chicken and egg issue. You need a, a large scalable customer base to like, think about the cost of making one iPhone, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's monumental, right? And, and you have the same dynamic for, for reactors. Um, and I, I'd also just say that a lot of these reactors are very different, right? So look at new scale. Are you ever really going to permit and build a single unit? Probably not. You know, you're talking about six packs, eight packs. And so then you're talking about a much larger um, uh, amount of generation, which probably has a smaller total addressable market because Again, you're talking about a lot of places globally, whether you're trying to power a mine or whether you're trying to power a remote um, uh, you know, population center that doesn't need you know, 700 megawatts, right? Yeah. So again, um, when you think about, I think there's 60 or 70 different designs for, for small modular and advanced. And you know, there's everything from you know, the reactor that actually goes in the back of a truck to something that mirrors more of what we currently think of as nuclear power generation on a very large scale basis. And so um, I, I, anyway, I don't wanna to get too into specific designs, but the answer is it's all over the map. And yeah. my personal opinion is that you're going to need to have um, government support. You're gonna to need to not only pick winners, but help them scale with government funding if we're going to make progress. Yeah. I also think that's very likely. And the reason I think that's likely, um, it, it may not be imminent, um, is because without nuclear, decarbonization in the U.S. is, is very, very difficult. Um, it, it's, I'm sure you've talked about in the podcast several times, you know, going from 15% to 20% wind and solar is pretty doable. It doesn't drastically change the grid, doesn't drastically change electricity costs. Um, going from 40 to 60% is incredibly difficult, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing it in Germany. We're seeing it in, in, in a number of markets. So, um, it may be a few years um, before we, we realize the benefit and the need for nuclear, um, but, but I very much believe it will happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting, you know, in terms of those those binding targets that are that are being released now. I mean, there's I think five gigawatts of of nuclear that's scheduled to come offline in the in the U.S. I forget the time frame. I'm not sure if it's just this year. Maybe it's in the next five years with Byron and Dresden and Diablo Canyon, Indian Point. Um, and it's, it's interesting just looking at the sheer number of SMRs that you need to build to just replace what we're losing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it's being lost purely for political reasons. So, I mean, I, I, maybe I'm less bullish or less hopeful on this, but convince well, me otherwise. <laughs> here's the way I'd frame it, right? What you should focus on when you think about nuclear opportunities really depends on where you're talking about. In the emerging markets, which is really driving um, New the nuclear industry, like we often think of it, nuclear industry from the perspective of the U.S., the U.S. is becoming a smaller and smaller part of the, of the global nuclear industry. And, and that has all sorts of geopolitical implications and national security implications, but it's happening. Um, it's happening every year. So um, globally, large-scale nuclear is still very, very impactful for global energy grids, especially where energy demand is growing, the emerging markets, right? So that's the story there. Um, and SMRs in the future may play a role there, but it's still really large-scale new builds. Um, if we think about the U.S. and Europe, it's about life extensions. It's about retaining the nuclear fleet we already have today and investing in the future through, through advanced nuclear and SMRs. But the best way we can impact the climate by a mile is just not to shut these things off. Mm -hmm. um, Indian Point's a great example. I live 25 miles from Indian Point. Um, I, and, and if I drive up to Dover, which is a little bit north of me on Route 22, I see a massive new gas plant. Huge, right? So we shut down Indian Point. The promise is we're going to replace it with renewables. We open two huge combined cycle plants, and then we turn on a bunch of old fossil fuel in Queens and northern New Jersey, which is really inefficient, horrible for the environment. And when 
people say, oh, well, what, what happened? Our carbon emissions, the state are going up. We've committed to them going down. What are we going to do? The answer from the administration is we're going to build a bunch of huge, large-scale transmission lines to Canada to pull down clean electricity. Well, clean electricity in Canada comes from nuclear and hydro, which the environmentalists in New York were arguing against. So, you know, it's just almost a comedy of errors from a political standpoint. Um, but what we see over and over again is it's pretty easy to run on an anti-nuclear platform. Yeah. Um, it ends up really being hard to shut them, shut nuclear plants down unless you're fine with carbon emissions going up and, and frankly, costs going up. There's all sorts of studies that prove that both occur. Um, but I, I think that, I'll get off on a bit of a tangent there. I'd say the benefit to the industry is, is twofold. Again, now we have these committed climate targets and not only states, but corporations are starting to commit to them. Right. And if we're shutting down nuclear, those become, you know, in the words of the CEO of Duke Energy, impossible to hit. Yeah. So I think we're going to see a much more focused um, uh, push to save these plants. Um, and if we can do that and we can support the current nuclear fleet in the United States, that's going to help dramatically. And it's mm -hmm. also going to help just save the industry's you know, intellectual property so to continue to have people come into this industry and help build the advanced nuclear and future designs that we're going to need in the future. Um, I think stopping the bleeding goes a long way, actually. What's your take on, I guess, some disruptive ideas like, um, you know, Thorcons of, of shipyard building of nuclear? Um, I mean, it seems to be a pretty interesting idea to, especially for emerging markets and, and some countries that don't currently have the capacity for a nuclear industry to, you know, park these these uh, seaborne reactors offshore and, and, and pump in that clean energy. Um, do you think there's the potential for something like Thorcon to be, you know, very disruptive and, and really change the face of nuclear energy or, you know, what's... What's your what's your thoughts on on that concept? You know, I, listen. I, I obviously um, our entire nuclear industry was built really on the back of the naval nuclear industry, right? That's yeah. what led us to choose the designs we chose, um, and and we have you know plenty of reactors. You know, I always laugh. Uh, Russia created a floating nuclear reactor, and all these anti nukes came out and were like, "Can you imagine nuclear and water?" You know, it doesn't sound like an environmental disaster. And it's like, we have dozens and dozens and dozens of these things um, that have worked for 50 years incredibly efficiently. And you know, it's the backbone of our Navy and uh, other countries are moving that direction as well. So I, I think it makes sense. But I, I kind of go back to what are we trying to solve here? Um, if the answer is we're trying to decarbonize globally, it's just not, it's just not scalable enough. Does, does replacing like marine shipping through nuclear powered shipping make an impact? Sure, it does. But if we're talking about, um, you know, trying to bring emerging markets up the curve from a quality of life standpoint, and a power usage standpoint, I'm a big believer that we can't take away their options. And so when I think globally, large scale nuclear is still, still the answer. Whether we build in the US in the short term, I'm not sure. But what I would say is globally, when we think about what will solve um, are big issues. It's countries like India, China, and the emerging markets driven by exporters like Russia building new nuclear units. That will be the big impact. Mm -hmm. I guess finally, um, uranium's pretty hot right now. Um, there's uh, a lot of uranium bull investors. The spot price has gone up significantly. Um, another area where there's um, you know an ESG uh, argument to be made perhaps, um, in terms of, uh, certainly, you know, like Canada's mining operations, I think are, are very well regulated and there's strong environmental protections in place. Um, you know, Canada is also, um, an exporter of enormous amounts of uranium to, I believe, uh, you know, the U S and Europe. Um, so, you know, could potentially take credit for, you know, powering what, I mean, the majority of the U S is low carbon energy is still nuclear at this point. I think in Europe, um, it's, around 26%, although, you know, biomass is also included in that percentage of, of clean energy. Wow. Um, what's your take on what's happening with uranium right now? I know that's a huge question and we're just probably going to wrap up in five minutes or so, but yeah, give, you know, give us, give us you your take got, on uranium. You got maybe a few more than five, actually, this is a topic I'm, I'm happy to touch on. Uh, All right, cool. We'll do you it. Can cut it out. You can cut this whole thing out if I don't, if I don't go the right direction, but listen, I, I actually think that when we, when we think about the clean energy transition, you're unlikely to have a successful decarbonization unless you have a big shift in mining. 
Um, this is one of those places where you know people will malign uranium mining um, because a lot of the carbon footprint um, of nuclear as a generation source actually comes from the mining side. Right. But the same thing is true for batteries. The same thing is true for wind and solar, right? You, you need you need copper, you need nickel, you need lithium, you need cobalt. Um, if we are going to successfully transition towards a decarbonized world, you are going to see a significant shift towards additional mining, right? Mm -hmm. So we need mines to produce metals, regardless of what energy source we're talking about. Yeah, I, I think it's and, interesting because I don't, I don't think people think about, you know, extraction of natural gas and petroleum as kind of a mining, but a lot of the, the transition to a clean economy involves this transition from like fluids and gases that we kind of pull up out of the earth that we mine per se um, towards, towards solids, minerals, uh, lithium, uh, uranium. And, and that's, people don't like to think about mining. I think particularly in the West um, we've managed to kind of offshore a lot of mining in the U S I know it's incredibly difficult to, to get a, a permit to mine. Um, so it's kind of not in people's backyards and kind of out of sight, out of mind and uh, out of mind. Uh, and, and anytime you sort of bring up kind of the tonnages or, or the environmental impacts, you know, people are kind of shocked by it, but I mean, literally everything that's not bio, you know, from biomass that we have in terms of wood and things like that has been mined. Yep. Um, so it's, you know, that it's, it's interesting how it's, it's kind of so hidden from us, but go on, go on. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think, um, unlike, so, so right now, metals and mining companies are framing themselves as part of the clean energy transition and rightly so because they are, they're, they're very needed. But if I, as an investor am asked to underwrite an ESG investment on something like nickel, because we need a lot more nickel because we're going to use it in batteries over time and battery adoption is going to go like this. And so we need more and more nickel mines to produce more of this stuff so that we can back up wind and solar, right? 70% of nickel use is still, you know, stainless steel. So I'm in theory underwriting investment in nickel because it's part of the clean energy transition, but a lot of its usage isn't, right? right. The reason uranium is so interesting is because 100% of the production of uranium goes to clean baseload nuclear power, right? None of it's getting used in other industries. And so I think from an ESG perspective, the idea that it's kind of a single use mined substance makes it just much more palatable, right? I'm not then also underwriting stainless steel production, which is, you know, from an ESG perspective can be very difficult. Although I so, guess, I, I guess the, the anti-nuclear argument would be, well, it's a dual use uh, technology and might be underwriting <laughs> nuclear weapons. I mean, we, we could probably talk for a while on, on what safeguards were in place to make sure that um, the, the sales of something like Canco's uranium could not right. be used in, in military. Um, okay. But, but anti-nukes, I'm sure, can make the argument. I think that, again, um, if you look at the fuel cycle, it's incredible, incredibly highly regulated. Um, and there's actually many more safeguards in place around things like waste, things like inappropriate use um, than, than most other elements. So I'm, sure. I'm, not, I'm not worried about the, the, um, the argument on the military side. Um, the vast majority of military was mined in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and so some countries do have stockpiles, but if a mined pound of uranium comes out of the ground today, it's getting used in the civil nuclear plant. Mm -hmm. um, but what I'd say is more broadly, as ESG becomes a bigger and bigger focus, um, these ESG rubrics, for the most part, especially at the rating agencies, are not smart enough to give you credit for what you're producing, right? So I could produce a pound of uranium or a pound of brown coal, and the ESG rubrics, for the most part, wouldn't give me credit for the uranium being a low carbon, you know, uh, 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 used um, end product. And they wouldn't necessarily penalize me for the coal. They would just say, okay, well, how much diesel did I use in my operation when I was taking it out of the ground? So again, these rubrics are still really blunt instruments. And I think what we're going to see over time is they're actually going to start valuing the end products of extractive industries in very different ways. So if it's an extraction that ends in lithium, you know, you still may be penalizing it for its water use in Chile or for its human rights, you know, uh, uh, structure, but you're going to recognize that that lithium is going to get used for the majority of the time in an electric vehicle and you're going to give them credit for that. So I think that that will take place over time where these rubrics don't view all extract extracted the same way. And to the extent that happens, it's really positive for the, uh, the perception of the uranium market. Um, and then the last point I'd make is that 
all of these ESG pushes will generally raise the cost of mining, right? If you look at the demand profiles of most metals associated with the clean energy transition, they're, they're hockey sticks, right? Whether it's, you know, the amount of you know, copper, it's going to go from 3% green usage to 16% green usage. It's going to just, all the growth is in, is in clean energy. But in order to produce the metals that we're going to need, you're going to have to access larger and larger deposits that are lower and lower grade at higher and higher costs. Right. The problem with lower and lower grades is that there's a relatively linear relationship between grade and environmental impact, right? So lower grade means you're moving more tonnage, using more water, and generally have a much worse ESG footprint. As ESG penalizes those uh, assets more and more, the cost of the industry in dealing with ESG dynamics is going to inflate metals prices. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. The reason that's important, just circling it all back to nuclear, is if we're talking about an inflationary metals and mining uh, industry, um, whether that inflation is coming from monetary policy, there's currently expectations of inflation, or because it's ESG being applied and, and increasing the cost of mining um, in some of these jurisdictions or some of these low-grade resources, then you actually want to build a generation source where fuel cost is a lower and lower hmm. percentage of total cost. So right. if the cost of all of your natural resources for energy are going up over time, the one where fuel cost is the lowest percentage of total generating costs over time actually looks cheaper and cheaper. And so uh, I guess I'm saying all that to say that if natural resources generally go up, the competitiveness of things like batteries actually can be impaired. Uh, things like natural gas can be impaired. You know, if everybody's suddenly using natural gas as a bridge fuel, maybe it's not $2.50. Right. And nuclear benefits from all of that, because the price of uranium can go up quite a bit without really impacting your generation cost. So you actually want to be long the generation source with the lowest cost of fuel relative to total system cost. Does that make sense? That's that's super interesting. I, I think you know another factor that's that's of interest is that you know a lot of investment in. Um, you know, individual wind and solar projects um, does not take into account the grid integration costs, you know, and the, the need for these massive kind of interties and, and transmission infrastructure. Um, whereas, you know, fueled resources like, like um, nuclear can be sort of plugged into existing sites with that transmission there and not actually drive up the need for metals, you know, primarily, I guess, copper for transmission, but I, I mean, I guess also steel for the towers and things like that. So, you know, that, that mining impact, you know, could be, uh, emphasized as, as, you know, even better, not just from the actual, you know, energy generation source, but its implications in terms of grid integration. Well, that's why, again, like I, I, and we didn't get into this quite as much, but I know we have a, a, a defined amount of time here. Um, I really am a big believer that to the extent that ESG becomes a bigger and bigger driver of capital, nuclear has a wonderful story to tell, not mm -hmm. only on the generation side, but also on the mining side. Um, I think if you look at like a ton of earth moved to acquire uranium, um, one, most of the stuff coming out of the ground now is, is very, very high grade. And if it's low grades, they use ISR, which is you don't actually move earth, you're pumping a solution into the ground and, and taking uranium out without much disruption to the land. But um, you know, the amount of energy coming out per ton is just dramatically, dramatically better than any other, any other uh, option. So again, um, over time, if ESG uh, um, rubrics are applied uniformly and everybody now has to account for their waste, right? If solar now has to tell you, okay, after 15 years, I'm not gonna take a, a solar project and resell it to a third world country and let them deal with the waste. I'm actually gonna have to account for the decommissioning of that project and either the recycling of the waste or the accounting of the waste, when I decide to build it the way that we do for nuclear, you know, if we start applying what nuclear already has to deal with to every other energy source, again, yeah. over time, nuclear looks better and better. So this, this is why I think ESG is such a big driving force, not only because the generating story has, has a good story to tell, um, and Exelon and those guys have a great story to tell on why nuclear is so important to our grid system, but also because this industry has had to deal with ESG for 30 years. We're already really good at it. If everybody else suddenly has to pay attention, that's really good for us on a relative basis.
And so right. I think it's, a, it's an incredibly impactful and promising uh, development. I guess just in closing, I mean, you're, you're selling a pretty rosy picture of the potential for ESG to be, you know, I guess, acting as a source of regulation for these industries, improving, you know, human rights impacts, hopefully labor laws and impacts, um, uh, you know, environmental impacts for mining, et cetera. Like to me, as, as a bit of a skeptic, it sounds, it sounds a little too good to be true and a, and a means for, I guess, the private sector to sort of self-regulate. And I'm always a little bit, um, I guess, uh, suspicious of, of, you know, any industry that's kind of regulating itself. I know in this sense, it's kind of the financial industry regulating uh, individual corporations, but, um, you know, there's, there's a lot, I guess, of, of shenanigans that can go on in terms of power plays to, to avoid some of the, uh, the, the impacts of this, I'm imagining. Um, to, to what to, I know ESG is something that's kind of growing and becoming increasingly dominant, but if it does really start to impact the bottom line and profits for, for corporations, do you see uh, like a bit of a rebellion against it or else just ways to really manipulate it so it doesn't actually achieve what it's kind of setting out to do? If I, if I described uh, the integration of ESG into the investing world as a panacea, I, I didn't mean to. I, I think there's a lot of open questions. Yeah. Um, the open questions are things like, um, it's uh, mining is a great example, right? If you're an operating mine with a track record, um, it's really easy for an ESG process to encapsulate what your value proposition is. Right. If you are a developer or an explorer and you're trying to build a company, ESG is never really going to appropriately predict what you're going to be in the future. That's just not how ESG rubrics are set up. Right. And so there's plenty of gaming. Um, the disclosure in a large operating company versus a small mid-cap company um, is, is you know, miles apart. Um, you're already seeing misallocation of capital across the investment landscape based on ESG perception. I think what I'm saying is that as an investor, more disclosure is always better. I'd always sure. rather have the data. I do think that owners of capital should be uh, responsible, not just for the financial impact of deploying that capital, but also for the non-financial impacts. Mm -hmm. So I think I agree with it in theory. Like anything else, it's a question of how it's executed. Um, it's gonna be um, probably a rocky road filled with, you know, again, booms and busts and bubbles and, and issues. Um, I think over time, it will be positive. And I know it's going to happen. So that, that's the one other thing. You know, there's plenty of skeptics out there. My Twitter profile is fill, filled with comments that are saying that the ESG thing's a fad and it's going away. You know, I, I disagree. I think that fundamentally misunderstands what the, the goals of ESG are. Um, and I think that um, you know, we'll know a lot more in two to three years. The rubrics have to get better. They have to be less of a blunt force tool. They have to um, realize the nuances within industries and within companies, but it's trending in the right direction. And, and I'm pretty hopeful that we can deploy it as an industry in a thoughtful manner. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it, Arthur. Um, thanks again for making the time to come on Decouple. Um, and uh, you know, I look forward to the conversation this episode is going to generate and uh, maybe having you back on someday. Anytime. Thanks so All much. Right. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.